worship this morning comes from Psalm 103. I want to read the whole psalm. It's not that long, only about 20 verses. Psalm 103, Psalm of David. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits. Who pardons all your iniquities? Who heals all your diseases? Who redeems your life from the pit? Who crowns you with loving kindness and compassion? Who satisfies your years with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagle? The Lord performs righteous deeds and judgments for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the sons of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he himself knows our frame. He's mindful that we are but dust. As for man, his days are like grass, as a flower of the field, so he flourishes. When the wind has passed over it, it is no more, and its place acknowledges it no longer. But the loving kindness of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him, and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember his precepts to do them. The Lord has established his throne in, in the heavens, and his sovereignty rules over all. Bless the Lord, you his angels, mighty in strength who perform his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all you hosts who serve him, doing his will. Bless the Lord, all you works of his, in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul. Let's pray. Father, we do echo this psalm. We would bless you that our hearts and our minds and the core of our being would cry out to you for the riches of your goodness and grace and mercy that you have shown us. All of these coming together, the wonder of the cross where your son died for our sins, paid the penalty that we could not pay, and you redeemed us and brought us back to yourself. When David says, that our transgressions are cast as, as far as the east is from the west. I can't help but think that he was prophesying in a sense looking toward the cross. Because the blood of sheep and goats and animals could not atone for all the sins of your people. It took the shed blood of your precious Son, Jesus Christ. Oh, the depths of your riches of grace and mercy toward us. It's this that we celebrate this morning, Father. So would you come and meet with us? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Sinner condemned unclean. 
Ash was redeemed, only beauty remains. And my orphan heart was given a name. My morning grew quiet, my feet rose to dance. When death was arrested in my life being. I'm a prisoner no more My shame was a ransom me faithfully bore He canceled my debt and he called me his friend When death was a children's moment. Um, so last week we talked about God is what? Anybody remember? 
God is ruler over all, right? All of creation. Okay, we talked about that last week. And so and one of those aspects of God ruling over creation was what? Does anybody remember? Adults? His provision that he provides for all of creation, right? And we talked about that last week. So we're going to look a little bit more at that this week in that God provides all good things for the world around us, okay? Now, this morning when I uh, read our call to worship, I read from Psalm 103, okay, where David writes, he says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits. David's saying, don't forget any of the good things that God's done for us, that God's given to us. Okay, the, uh, in, in the New Testament, James writes of God, and he says that every good and perfect gift that we have comes from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. Okay, God gives us all good things. Okay, and Paul writes this, he even carries this a little further. Okay, what are, what are some good things that, that we have? Anybody? I'm feeling like most of the kids are over here, so that's most of my directions over here. Anybody, what are some good things that, that we have? Ethan, what you think? Give me something good that you have. What did you have for breakfast this morning? Cheese dance, was that good? Yeah, that was good. Okay, I saw a hand back there. Where, where was it? Whose hand was back there? Nobody? Anybody else? What else? What are some good things that we have? What you got, Marley? Strawberry oatmeal. Yeah, that's good. What else? A mommy and daddy. That's right. Yeah. Puppies. Yeah, I agree. Most of the time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. What you got? Swimming pool. Absolutely. Yeah, swimming pool. Water. What else? Yeah, puppy. All right. Somebody. All right. There you go, puppy. Sunshine. Okay, great. These are all what we call common graces. Okay, these are things that we all in can enjoy in their God's provision for us. Okay, that God's, God's made all of these things available. Now, Paul takes this one step further when he writes to the Ephesians and he says, he said, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in him, in Jesus. So what Paul's saying is all good things that we have come from God the Father through the Son. Okay? Now, there's some specific things that as Christians we have because of Jesus. Anybody want to take a guess of that? What's, what's something that we have specifically because of Jesus that's a good thing? This fruit's a little higher to grab. Anybody want to take on it? Okay, what about forgiveness of sins? Yeah, that comes through Jesus, right? We have forgiveness of sins. Okay, a relationship made right with God through Jesus, through faith. Okay, what? Friends? Okay, I'd say, yeah, in a, yeah, in a sense, that's true. Yeah, we have, we have friends. We know friendship because of what Christ has done for us. What about hope of eternal life? Right, because Jesus was raised from the dead. He gives us the promise that all who believe in him will be raised from the dead and we'll have eternal life with him. Okay, those are wonderful, big, big hopes that we have. So there's specific hopes that we have because of Jesus, okay, that we know if we know Christ and we know God through Jesus, we have those specific good things as well, all right? All right, 
Well, there's one other thing, too. Paul writes this in Romans, and he, he writes this in Romans 8, and he said, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? All right, now repeat that back to me. Now, that's a tough one. <laughs> yeah, him <laughs> is like, what? <laughs> okay, let me, let me break this down. Okay, what, what Paul's saying, he's like, He's like, who can be against us? If God the Father has given us all things in the Son, then will he withhold any good thing for us? Okay, let me paint a picture for you. Okay, let, let's imagine, kids, look at me. Okay, let's imagine that you've got a really rich uncle, okay, that comes to your family and says, you know what, I love you so much, and, and I want to be generous to you. I'm going to build you a huge house. Okay, I'm going to build you a monster house. I'm going to put everything in it that would be good for you, okay, that you need. Now, what are some things that are, would be good to have in a, in, a, in a house? What you got? Ellie, tell me something. What's something that's good in a house? Puppies. Okay. You even have puppies. Cats. Okay. How about a bedroom? Okay, a bedroom. You need a bedroom, place to sleep. What you got? Family? Okay, there's families going to be in there. It's going to be a place for everybody. That's right. Okay, Marley? An indoor pool, maybe there's an indoor pool in there. What about a kitchen? Kitchen, you can have food in there, okay? Yeah, bathrooms, okay? Running water, there you go, okay, all right. So he said, I'm going to spare no expenses, okay? Everything that you need, I'm going to put in this house. All right, so let's say he builds this house for you, your family moves in, and the first dinner, are you looking at me, kids? The first dinner that you have, you sit down to a huge table, a big, big banquet table, Everybody's sitting there, all the food spread out before you, and you know what you notice? Something's missing from that table. Salt and pepper. Chairs. Oh, chairs are there. You're sitting down. That's good, though. That's good. All right. Salt and pepper. There's no salt and pepper on this table. Now, let me ask you something. If you're a rich uncle who's so gracious and he spared no expenses in building this house out of his generosity for you, for you and your family, do you think he's going to withhold the little salt and pepper shaker? No, absolutely not. Because he's done the greater thing. What's the greater thing he did? Built the house, right? Because he's done the greater thing, he can be trusted to do the smaller thing. What's the smaller thing? The salt and pepper shaker. Okay, so here's the connection. Here's what the, the point that Paul's making. If God the Father has done the greater thing, Sending his son to die on the cross for our sins and bring us back into relationship with him. Give us all the promises that are linked in with Christ. Forgiveness of sin, reconciliation with him, promise of a hope of eternal life. All of these things, then he can be trusted to do the smaller thing. Provide whatever is necessary for our daily life and in order to fashion us, make us more like Jesus. Does that make sense? Is that helpful? Yeah. Yes, no, tracking. We're getting there. Okay. <laughs> all right. So let me let me kind of bring this to a close. All right. So God is good and God gives us all good things. All right. So what's our response to that? What's our response? When you get something really good, maybe a gift, what do you what do you do? You use the gift, okay, all right, but what do you what's your response to the person who gives it to you? You say thank you, right? You say thank you. So our response to God 
who gives us all good things should be continual thanksgiving, always being thankful. You know, Jesus tells a story about 10 lepers, 10 men who were really, 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 really super sick. And Jesus healed them. Do you know how many came back to give him thanks? One. One. And Jesus makes a point about this. And he says there were 10 that were healed and only one came back to give thanks. See, being thankful is important to God. Being thankful is, is, is important. It's a big deal. For him, Paul wrote to the Romans and he wrote of, of people who knew God in Romans one. And he said, you know what? Even though they knew God. Even though they knew him, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. So Thanksgiving is a big deal because it means that I appreciate the good things that God has given to us. Do you remember the story of the Israelites and they wandered in the wilderness for years and years and years? And they wandered because they grumbled and complained. When David writes, he says, forget none of the Lord's benefits. It's a reminder that we should always remember all of the good things that God gives to us. And that we should give him praise and give him thanksgiving for it. All right. All right. Well, I appreciate your attention this morning, guys. Let me pray for us and then we're going to sing a couple more songs. By God, I thank you and I praise you. I know I so often fail to look out upon your creation as the sun comes up in the morning and praise you and give you thanks. Because that sunrise is a blessing of grace. As the sun sets at night and the moon comes out and I can see the stars, that's a blessing of grace. Any love and affection that I receive from my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ and even those who love me who don't know Jesus that's grace that's a gift from you Father all good things come from your hand and so you are the one who should receive all praise from me so Father I ask that we would think about this that it would sink down into our minds especially the minds of the children here this morning Father that as they learn, please and thank you, that it wouldn't just be behavior modification. It wouldn't just be a rote memory response, but it would be a thoughtful appreciation for the good things that are given to them. And that all of those praises would roll up into your name. So, Father, would you be exalted in our midst this morning as we continue to worship. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Stand together, please.
has asked me to read from uh, read Psalm 80 uh, before the sermon. So I'm going to read this and I'm going uh, to pray. Psalm 80. O give ear, shepherd of Israel, you who led Joseph like a flock, you who are enthroned above the cherubim, shine forth before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh. Stir up your power and come to save us. O God, restore us and cause your face to shine upon us, and we will be saved. O Lord God of hosts, how long you will you be angry with the prayer of your people? You have fled them. You have fed them with the bread of tears, and you have made them to drink tears in large measure. You make us an object of contention in our, uh, to our neighbors, and our enemies laugh among themselves. O God of hosts, restore us and cause your face to shine upon us, that we will be saved. You removed a vine from Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground before it, and it took root, and it took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shadow, and the cedars of God with its boughs. It was sending out its branches to the sea and its shoots to the river. Why have you broken down its hedges, so that all who pass that way pick its fruit? A boar from the forest eats it away, and whatever moves in the field feeds on it. O God of hosts, turn again now, we beseech you. Look down from heaven and see, and take care of this vine. Even the shoot which, you th- which your right hand has planted, and on the sun whom you have strengthened for yourself, it is burned with fire, it is cut down. They perish at the rebuke of your countenance. Let your hand be upon the man of your right hand, upon the son of man whom you made strong for yourself. Then we shall not turn back from you. Revive us, and we will call upon your name. O Lord God of hosts, restore us, cause your face to shine upon us, and we will be saved. Let's pray. As we come to this time in our service, we open up your word. Would you once again do your pruning work as the psalmist cries out to save us? Because we look at your word, we look at your redemptive story that you've woven throughout history. And we see that all good things that come to us from you come through your Son. Even the hard things that shape us and make us more like Jesus. Father, would you condition our hearts to love Christ more today than we did yesterday, more tomorrow than today, and so on each day until you come. I lift up to you our missionaries who are overseas and ask the same thing for them, that in the midst of wherever they are and whatever you have them involved in, Individual struggles that are known to others and those that even are not known, that are secret, that weigh on them in the darkness of night. Father, would you maintain for them a strong, overwhelming affection for Jesus that surpasses any struggles and battles that they might endure? Father, I ask that you do the same for us as we are local missionaries here 
in Greer and Greenville, South Carolina. That, Father, we would set the exaltation of your name through the spreading of the gospel of Jesus as our highest goal and highest love. So, Father, as Alan comes now and opens your word, would you be exalted in our midst? And, Father, would you do your work in our hearts? It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. You can open your Bibles to John 15. We finished up 14. Now we're going to move forward. We have 15, looking at verses 1 through 8 today. So John 15, 1 through 8, if you'll, if you'll get there. I want to do this. I just want to kind of give you a context very quickly because that's going to help us as we navigate through this text here. So back in chapter 13, you remember that Jesus washed the disciples' feet. We're still in that room, by the way. We're still there. I mean, Jesus has said all these things, and we've taught through all of these things that have happened between Christ and his disciples. Jesus has washed their feet. Jesus has spoken of the Holy Spirit. Jesus has spoken of what it means to truly be his disciples, what it means to um, keep his commandments and what that communicates to the world around them. Uh, we've seen Judas betray Jesus or go out to betray Jesus. He's identified as a betrayer. He's identified as a devil. And so uh, we're still there. We're still in that upper room. We're still in that context where Jesus is speaking with his disciples. Okay, so that's that's very important as we look at what's going to transpire over these eight verses. Okay, so I'm going to read these to you and then we'll kind of start talking through some things. Jesus says, I'm the true vine. He says, and my father is the vine dresser. If I I normally don't title sermons, but today's, well, I do actually for the internet, but I never say those things for here. But uh, today I've titled it uh, the, the Vine Dresser and His Vineyard. So I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. So two of the characters immediately, Jesus, God the Son and God the Father. Every branch, that's the third character, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that, he, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. This is not the first time that he said they're clean. Back when he washed their feet, that whole discussion, he says, hey, you're clean. You're clean because of these words that I've shared with you. So the cleansing power of the word of God is what's taking place there. So he said, you're already be clean because of what I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that will bear much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Now, what Jesus is doing here, again, as Jesus does, he speaks to them in a way that they can understand. In the first century, especially where they are, it's agrarian, right? Uh, it's, it was a lot of livestock, specifically sheep. There's a lot of shepherding as a, as a primary occupation. But also there are vineyards everywhere. This is wine culture. This is wine culture. They made wine, and they made good wine. 
So this is wine culture. So there's language of vines and branches and vineyards and vine dressers. God is the vine dresser. Jesus is the vine. And we are the branches. And I'll explain a little bit more of that. But this is not a new metaphor that Jesus is using with them. And this is kind of critical for you to understand because what Jesus is about to do, maybe unbeknownst to you, maybe unbeknownst to the disciples, I think maybe they got some of it, maybe. But what we're going to see is Jesus bridging the gap between the Old Testament and the New, between the Old Covenant and the New. This is what Jesus is about to do. He's taking this Old Testament narrative and he's bringing it over, showing its relevance, showing its place in the modern time there. So listen to this. He uses vine language. This is not new. This is not something that's revolutionary. This is something that's commonplace in the Old Testament with reference specifically to Israel. I had Austin read Psalm 80. What I want to do is turn back there very briefly and I want to identify a few things just to show you that this metaphor that Jesus is using is not new. It's not new at all. It's very clear and it has a lot of weight to it. So if we Go forward, not starting in one, but we come on down to verse 8 in 80. Let me just read some things and kind of point out what's happening here. This is speaking of Israel. He says, you brought a vine out of Egypt. Who did the Lord rescue from Egypt? The Israelites. After their years and years and years of slavery. So he rescues them from there, and that is captured here by the psalmist. You brought a vine out of Egypt. Notice what he calls them. He calls them the vine. He doesn't call Israel the branch. He calls them the vine. And it's interesting that Jesus, here in this text that we're in, he calls himself the true vine, but he also calls them the vine there. So listen, Jesus is bringing things to clarity. He said, you brought a vine out of Egypt, you drove out the nations, and you planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. What land is it talking about? The land of Canaan, the promised land. What did God do? God took Israel. He took his covenant chosen people and he brought them out of bondage. He brought them out of slavery. He freed them. He guided them through the wilderness and he brought them to this place that he had promised them. Okay? So they're not just placed in a land, but a fertile land, a land that is good, a land that God did what? Prepared for them. And so this is what it is referring to. So if we move forward in verse 10, it says, The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea and its shoots to the river. It speaks of the, the, the fertile land that Israel was brought to and planted in as the vine. It sent out its branches to the sea. Verse 12, it says, Why then have you broken down its wall? So there's a shift in the tone here. There's a shift in the trajectory of the way that the psalmist speaks of Israel. Okay? You follow me with this? Israel is now in trouble. Because it says, why then have you broken down its walls so that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit? The boar from the forest ravages it and all that move in the field feed on it. Turn again, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see. Have regard for this vine. The stock that your right hand planted and for the son whom you made strong for yourself, they have burned it with fire. They have cut it down. May they perish at the rebuke of your face. So they come from being delivered to this fertile land to the strong language of fire and rebuke. And if you know anything about the history of Israel, they enter into this adulterous relationship where they commit adultery or harlotry against God Almighty. They chase after idols. They chase after other gods. 
they do all of these things much to the anger, much to the indignation of of God. And that's what the psalmist is writing about. And the psalmist didn't just write about this, but Isaiah recaptured this in Isaiah chapter 5. In Isaiah chapter 5, we know that Isaiah, up until chapter 6, he's groaning and complaining about Israel. They keep doing this. They keep doing that. They're stiff-necked. They're a hardened people. Why won't they listen to anything? And that's where the beatific vision comes in of Isaiah chapter 6. And Isaiah is undone before the Lord because God reveals a portion of his holiness before Isaiah. But prior to that point, Isaiah is just railing on Israel. And this is what he says for a few verses. Let me sing now for my well-beloved a song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. My well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. He dug it all around. Speaking of Israel, who was planted on this fertile hill. He dug it all around, removed its stones, and planted it with the choicest vine. And he built a tower in the middle of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. Then he expected it to produce good grapes, but it produced only worthless ones. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in, that I have not done in it? Why, when I expected to, for it to produce good grapes, did it produce worthless ones? So now let me tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it will be consumed. I will break down its wall and it will become trampled ground. I will lay it waste. I will not be pruned. It will not be pruned or hoed, but briars and thorns will come up. And I will also charge the clouds to rain no rain on it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. Israel is considered the vine. But what happens with Israel as the vine? Israel failed. It failed as the vine, and then something had to happen. A shift had to take place, and that's where we see in Psalm 80 where it says, But let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. Then we shall not turn back from you. Give us life, and we will call you by your name. Who is the son of man? And who is it that is at the right hand of God the Father? It's God the Son, Jesus Christ. So now we fast forward to this text here, and Jesus is saying, I am what? The true vine. That's biblical theology. We've traced this thread back to its origin. We've traced this thread back to the old covenant. And we see how Jesus is bridging that gap, and he's leaning on that narrative to bring things full circle and show them, listen, where Israel was a type and where there are always types and there are always shadows. These things are nothing more than types and shadows. I'm the real thing. I'm the true vine. And he says, and my father is the vine dresser. You see, this metaphor is not one that would be lost on them. Because it was an agrarian society. It was an agrarian culture. So whether they themselves were vine dressers, which I know they were not, they would be familiar with the process. And I've done a little bit of research on vine dressing and things like that just for this sermon. And I won't go through all of those things that I watched. But I watched a good bit. But there's a number of different ways to prune. There's uh, different language, different definitions, terminology that you might use. But what you need to understand is that a vine dresser's work is a big job. Keeping a vineyard is a big job. 
there are seasons where certain fungus come in. They have to be careful to make sure that that doesn't infiltrate. Or if it does to some degree, they have to extract that. I mean, there's a lot of upkeep that goes into keeping a vineyard. And the name of the game in keeping a vineyard is making sure that you have a produce or that you have a harvest that yields good dividends, that comes out with good grapes. And there's a lot of things that they do. There's a lot of processes that they go through. And the vine dresser has two major functions, two major roles. And that is to either cut away the branches that aren't bearing fruit or to prune back the branches that do bear fruit so that they can then in turn bear even more fruit. So that's the role of the vine dresser. And we've already shown who the characters are in the story. Jesus is the true vine, the vine that works, the vine that actually does supply some kind of nutrition to the branches. You get the branches, who in one part are us, and I'll explain that again in just a moment. And then you have the vine dresser, who is God. But we might see this and think, man, this is very clear, but there are some hurdles you have to get through very quickly. Just so let me explain this to you. So we need to understand what branches mean. We need to understand what it means when he says the branches that don't bear fruit, he will take away because the actual interpretation of that is that he will lift them up. So it gets a little strange when you and I are looking at this most likely and thinking, well, that's judgment. That's for those who are unbelieving. He's obviously going to cast them out because it talks about fire. It talks about being burned. So clearly that's condemnation and judgment for those who don't believe. For the Bible says, whoever believes is not condemned but those who do not are condemned already. So clearly that's what that means. Well, not for everybody. Everybody doesn't, they don't view it that way. So let me share with you interpretation that Austin and I reject, but that is out there just so that you're not blindsided when you come across it. And it's fairly popular, even amongst what I would consider to be conservative scholarship. Interpretation one, that these branches refer specifically to Christians, Christians, because they say it's in the context of him talking to his disciples. There aren't lost people around. He's still in that upper room. I told you this context matters. Still in that upper room. And he's talking about these are Christians that have lost their saltiness. And maybe there's a part of that that you can understand because Matthew 5.13 says, You are the salt of the earth, but if a salt has lost its taste, how how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet now that's a cautionary scripture to you and i because that does talk to believers there is a sense in which a believer might lose their saltiness but that's not for today's sermon but they would say that the branches of the christians that lose their saltiness or have been given gifts and they are no longer using those gifts so the penalty for that is that they're taken away from them it would be like if one of you was given the gift of discernment or one of you whatever the gift is that you want to put there and you don't use it for the edification of the church you don't use it for the glory of god you repress that and you just go on doing your own thing and they're saying that these are the people that god will take that gift from you you remain in christ but you're a branch that is cut off And they say that because Jesus starts out by saying, I am the vine and the father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me, he makes this positional statement. That's the way we talk. We talk about being in Christ. That's how Christians speak to one another. Or that's the vernacular that is used to communicate what it is to have relationship with Jesus. We're in Christ. 
And so I can see why that would be an acceptable interpretation for many. But let me share with you a second interpretation and why I hold to this and therefore reject the first. Interpretation number two, that the branches are people posing as believers but not really followers of Christ. I think these are people that may put on a profession, they put on a face, but they're not legitimate followers of Christ. And I think that for many reasons. Why? Because one, the larger context is a salvific context. Jesus has already said on a number of occasions, a number of occasions, this is how people will know that you're my disciples. You're a disciple of Jesus if you belong to Jesus. This is how the world will know that you know me, by the way, or lo- that how you love me, if you keep my commandments. You know, he talks about giving the Holy Spirit. Only believers are offered or given the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. You know, he talks in John 15, the same context, the same upper room, the same gathering. He's telling them about abiding. Listen, remain in me and I will remain in you. There's this abiding aspect that is twofold. Christ abides in us. We abide in him. And that is what happens when we are in Christ. So there's a larger context. There's a more immediate context. When we look back at Judas, Judas has just been labeled the betrayer. Okay, so the disciples have it fresh on their mind that Judas has just been outed as a betrayer. Judas had done what in their mind would have been one of the most heinous things they've ever seen because they traveled with this man for three years. He was privy and a witness to all the great miracles that Jesus had done up to that point that are recorded, at least that we know of. And Judas is a part of that. And so then Jesus labels him, says, you're, you're the man, you're a devil, you're a masso perdidio, a son of damnation, you know, you're, you're these things. And so they see this and that would land on them. And so it makes sense to me that in that context that Jesus would say, look, there are people that pose as believers. There are those that may seem like they're a branch. They may seem like that. They may even talk the talk and walk the walk. And you may think that it's fruit, but it's actually not fruit bearing. So that's another reason that I think the interpretation is these branches are those who are posing as they belong to Jesus, but don't really. The, the language here is strongly reminiscent of Matthew 7:19, which talks about knowing people by their fruits. Being able to identify if this person is in Christ or not by watching the fruits that are produced in their life. And then in that context of Matthew chapter 7, it says, The tree that does not bear fruit is cut off and cast into the fire. It is straight doctrine of hell that's being taught there. By Jesus. And the same type of language is here. So I connect that also with the theme of judgment throughout the New Testament especially. With a theme of hell that is taught throughout the New Testament. I heard one preacher say before, and I haven't done this study, so don't hold me to it. But I heard one preacher say before, Jesus spoke more on hell than he did on love. He spoke, he spoke more on judgment than he did on love. And that says something. There's definitely a theme there, and I think this is consistent with the theme. Listen, the reality is that there's no such thing as a fruitless Christian I don't know how to marry that with losing saltiness I don't know what all that means but I understand that when we are indwelt with the Holy Spirit of God that the Holy Spirit's role is to bring about fruit in our life so it would be safe to assume that if there's no fruits coming out 
It would mean that there was never a Holy Spirit that came within because that's his function. That's his role. How can someone be a genuine believer and there never be any kind of fruits in their life? I think it's an impossibility. Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that what we should walk in them. God prepared these works that you should walk in them. And typical to the way God does things is whatever he prepares, whatever he sets out to do, whatever he providentially decrees to happen, guess what? It happens. So these works that are prepared for the followers of Jesus, these works that he's laid out beforehand, prepared for you, you will walk in them. Because he ensures it, he decrees it, and the Holy Spirit works to ensure these things as well as a part of the Godhead. So there's your two interpretations. That's what the that's what the the vine dresser does. God in this text, Jesus is saying, listen, the vine dresser goes through, and because having a vineyard is a big deal, because managing the trajectory of the of the vine, managing where this is going to go, is a big big situation. A lot is at stake. A lot of money goes into this. So the vine dresser comes out and he's a key component to the success of the vineyard, to the success of the wine produce. And he goes through and he says, I'm looking at every single branch attached to every single vine. And I have to study it. I have to know it. Is it producing fruit? Is it not? If not, it's clipped. It's gone. Because what happens in real life vineyard when you have a branch that is still attached but not bearing fruit, it still absorbs some of the nutritional value that comes from the vine. It still takes some of the sap which is needed for the branches that are producing fruit. And so the vine dresser comes and he clips it because he doesn't want any wasted sap or any wasted nutritional value going to a branch that's not going to produce fruit. And you can clearly make the correlation to this spiritual aspect of where this metaphor is going. So the vine dresser's job is to clip the branches that are no good. His second priority is to prune the fruit-bearing branches so that he would ensure more fruit-bearingness. Listen again to the scripture. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it might be more fruit. I don't know what your thoughts are with regards to being pruned. But I know for me, I've always had it in my brain that this is something that's painful. This is something that's hard. This is something that ends up good and for the glory of God and good for me. But it's still a very difficult thing. I don't think it's reduced simply to that. I don't think pruning is just the discipline of God. I don't think pruning is just hard times that you may go through. I think pruning can come about in many ways. And here's why I believe that because Pruning is done for what purpose, according to the scriptures? That you might bear more fruit. Can God bring about more fruits in your life without taking you through a hardship? Absolutely he can. Absolutely he can. So pruning might not necessarily be discipline. I would say that, uh, I would say that all discipline is pruning, but not all pruning is discipline. So God can take you through whatever he wants and God can bring about this fruit bearingness in your life without necessarily having to take you through a hardship. But you better believe that every hardship that you go through may not be a discipline, but every hardship you go through is a part of God pruning you. And he does these things in love. Listen to Hebrews twelve six. for those whom the Lord loves, he does what he disciplines. 
He scourges every son whom he receives. He does these things in love. As a parent, God has given us a, a small glimpse into what his relationship is to us. Because I would say the majority of the time that you discipline your kids, unless you're just raging angry and you discipline out of anger, you discipline out of love. You discipline to set that child up for success. As painful as it might be to them, as painful as it might be to you, you understand in a small way what discipline accomplishes. And so when God disciplines or when God prunes or whatever he does to bring about these changes in our life, he does this in love. So what does pruning what does pruning to produce fruit look like? How do we apply this? We know that that's what the vine dresser does. We know that he comes and he'll prune. He might see fruits in your life and he says, that's awesome. Because when a vine dresser comes, this is how it works. He looks at a vine or he looks at the branch or he looks at a cane. And it's what he calls it. And he says, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to come back right here until there's like two buds left on the branch. And I'm going to cut that. And so what you have is multiplication. You have one branch that becomes two or one cane that becomes two. And they do this over and over and over and over again. A lot of times the way that a vine is pruned is contingent on the yield from years past. So there's always a game to where you're having to coerce the trajectory of the vine or of the branch and of the grapes because you want to ensure the best possible yield. And this is exactly what Jesus is saying that God does for us as the branches. Is whatever he has to do for you to produce more fruit, he does. Because it is absolutely loving of God to do anything in your life that would result in you being able to glorify God by the fruits that manifest out of his grace. That is love. I've heard it said before, there's nothing more loving of God than to make himself knowable. So this is how we need to think. This is the category we need to think in with regards to love. Is God bringing about things in our life for his greater glory and for your greater good? That's love. So what does this pruning look like? Well, it's not necessarily discipline. But if it is discipline, it's always pruning. Pruning is a much broader concept than you might be thinking. It doesn't necessarily mean hard things or bad things. It doesn't necessarily mean sickness, death, or struggle. But anything that God does to bring about fruit in your life, it's pruning. Pruning, by definition, is taking away that it might produce more. So God might take things out of your life like idols. God might take things out of your life that do not need to be there, and that is love. And you know that it's love because you know that there's something before you that doesn't need to be there. Maybe it's laziness. Maybe it's selfishness. Maybe it's adultery. Whatever. Whatever it is that's in your mind, whatever it is that's in your life, God might move in and say, hey, this is not, gonna, this is not going to ensure fruit. He's in the business of ensuring fruit. So taking things out of your life, eradicating things from your life to ensure fruit is a loving thing for him. And sometimes it's painful. To be sure, pruning is also when God removes things in your life, as I said, that may hinder spiritual fruit. And he can do this in any way that he pleases. Again, this text is on the heels of Jesus telling the disciples that he's going to send the helper to them. It is the spiritual, it is the spirit that produces the fruit in our lives. Otherwise, there can be no fruit. So it's helpful to consider that the pruning process works to bring about greater what? Love, peace, joy, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. Just to name a few that are listed in the scripture. So what type of pruning brings about the fruits of the Spirit? Well, what about love? 
you have love, but maybe God brings something into your life to increase your love. Maybe God brings about loss in your life to grant you perspective. To show you the beauty of love. To cause you to love more deeply and to love better. Joy. What has God brought into your life that enhances your joy? Specifically, your joy for Him, your joy for truth. Maybe God has used a word from Scripture. Maybe He's used a sermon. Maybe He's used a brother or sister in your life that's faithful to the Word and that's challenged you and it's brought greater joy and appreciation for the faithfulness of God. It's brought greater joy in your life. It's done these things for you. That's how God might work in pruning you. Perhaps it's a trauma or a hardship that God brought you through to grant you the perspective necessary to bolster peace and patience in your life. And those are two fruits of the Spirit, right? Peace and patience. I can't remember how, I can't tell you how many times I've been told by wiser men than myself, hey, never pray for patience (laughs) or that the Lord would teach you patience. Just pray that He just grants it to you without you going through this big learning process. Because that learning process is pruning. Because if it's bringing about greater joy, greater love, greater peace, greater patience, then He has pruned you. And if He's pruning you, that is proof positive that you belong to Jesus. Maybe you've been uh, shown kindness in your life that is set such an example that it made you want to be that kind of person to others. Maybe you're around somebody that just exudes kindness for everybody. And maybe, it's not a hardship, but maybe the Lord uses that person and how He's grown them. Maybe He's using them in your life to bring you to more kindness to others. Maybe He's shown you great kindness either through himself or through others in your life and that has brought you to a place that says you know what kindness really is a thing i want to be kinder to others because that's going to honor jesus maybe you fell on such maybe you fell on hard times financially emotionally etc that it granted you the disposition to always do good by others because you were shown a great good and a great kindness that's pruning that's pruning it doesn't have to be a kindness I mean, it doesn't have to be a, a painful thing or a hardship necessarily. As long as it's bringing about greater work, greater good, greater fruit, then it's pruning. One of the most common opportunities we have in this life is to show self-control. Everything, everything, not everything we do, but so many things we do demand self-control. So many things we want to do, you know, demand self-control. You know, I have a hard time going to any gas station. My wife will tell you. I frequently visit the, the QT, the quick trip, on my days at work. You, you pipe down back there. Um, I, I constantly go to QT. I'm like, I got to have this. I got to have that. I, I, you know, and, and I'm not making light of it. Uh, there's an issue where an, an elder has to be self-controlled. And so I, this is in my brain. It's something that I'm battling. I'm like, you know, can I deny myself? You know, can I deny this inclination? Do I have self-control? I mean, I'm opportunities are always there to have self-control at least three times a day you know i want to lock my kids out of the house for a month but i deny myself right i have to show self-control my wife i'm sure shows a lot of self-control towards me we always have these opportunities and what happens when these opportunities come up pruning pruning sometimes we fail sometimes we don't show self-control sometimes we choose to not show kindness but bitterness takes root or ugliness But these opportunities are always there to bring about these changes in our life. 
Pruning could bring about fruits by God removing things that don't belong to us. Listen to this. Real joy is often found and expressed when idols are revealed and removed. And that's pruning. So Jesus says, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it might bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. Because of the abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him. He it is that bears much fruit for apart from me. You can do nothing. The vitality of the branch is contingent on the vine. The vine is the source. Jesus says I'm the true vine. So our abiding in him is absolutely necessary for any kind of fruit bearing in our life. You have to abide in Jesus. To abide means to remain, to continue in, to be consistent with. There needs to be a pattern in your life that pursues loftier things more than there's a pattern in your life that pursues lower selfish things. We have to abide in the vine in order for us to have any fruit for apart from him we can do nothing in order for there to be authentic fruit bearing that consists that that is consistent with your profession uh, your profession of faith there must be this abiding factor there must be this remaining factor fruit bearing activity is consistent with with vine vitality abiding is a two-way street i've said that jesus says you abide in me and i will abide in you this is how this works this is in a nutshell the mechanics of what it is to be a fruit bearer if you're bearing fruit it's because you are remaining in jesus and jesus is remaining in you it's this collective work it's this wonderful wonderful collective work much like sanctification you're pressing into jesus and he is withdrawing you or pulling you away from the, the, the stain or, or, or looking like the world. Our abiding alone doesn't take effect unless we are abiding. Unless we are abided in by Christ. He says you can do nothing. Meaning you can do nothing that's honoring to the vine dresser without abiding in the vine itself. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Without Christ, our righteousness is nothing. Without Christ uh, or without abiding, our morality is nothing. Our motives are nothing. Our best intentions are nothing. Our works are nothing. We have to abide. Jesus says your righteousness is as filthy rags unless you abide and unless you have the righteousness of Christ. Do you see how this is starting to work? Your fruits, your fruit bearing is directly supplied by the vine. Just as grapes are only as good as the vine's nutritional supply, so too are the spiritual fruits that you and I produce. So if you want fruits that are acceptable, if you want good fruits, you have to abide in the vine. You have to receive from the vine what is necessary for there to be fruits that are acceptable. Sometimes our problem is wanting the benefit of the vine without abiding in the vine. We want to be more loving husbands. We want to be loving wives. We want to be more outspoken when it comes to engaging people with the gospel. We want to be more patient. We want to be a person that displays more joy. We want to have peace. We want all these things. We want, we want, we want, we want. We make our Christmas list for God every single, every single day. Hey, I want this more. I want this more. And all the while he's saying, listen, you have to abide in me. You have to do the work. You have to abide in me, and therefore I will abide in you. Jesus makes, or similar statements are made in the Scriptures, if you draw near to me, I will draw near to you. 
there is this expectation. We saw that already when he says, if you love me, keep my commandments. There's an expectation on the believer to abide in the vine. Otherwise, you can hang up the idea of being more of a fruit bearer. The pattern of your life must be the pursuit of loftier things with reference to Jesus. Listen, men, if you want to love your wives rightly, if you want to stand out, if you want to stand out at at work, you know, as someone that's trustworthy, that's reliable, that loves the Lord, if you want to make that kind of impact, you want to make that kind of difference, you have to pursue loftier things. You ever seen these people that just seem to be trekking with God on, on just another level that you haven't experienced? Man, they're always pursuing loftier things. Most of the time, people like that, what their private lives look like are consistent with what's going on in public. It all depends on what vine you are attaching yourself to. So here's my question as we wrap up. As a branch, what vine are you attaching yourself to? Because even those who are followers of Christ, we sometimes attach to the wrong vine. We abide in the wrong vine. We desire to receive from something that's not Jesus. We desire to receive from the world. We want this. We want that. We want the affirmations of men. We want all of these things. We attach ourselves to the vine of our bank accounts, our family, our status, our religion or religious systems. And he says, listen, <laughs> do you want to make a difference? Do you want the world to see that you belong to me? Because later he says again in this text, this is how they will know that you're my disciples. If you remain, if you abide. You see, John, 1 John says that they went away from us because they were never of us. What is he saying? They didn't remain. Maybe they looked like branches. Maybe they walked the walk. They talked the talk just like Judas. But in time, in time, they won't last. And that's the litmus test for knowing if you're truly a disciple of Christ. One pastor, theologian, said it this way. Jesus chose the figure of a vine for several reasons. The lowliness of a vine demonstrates his humility. It also pictures a close, permanent, vital union between the vine and the branches. It is symbolic of belonging because branches belong entirely to the vine. If branches are to live and bear fruit, they must completely depend on the vine for nourishment, support, strength, and vitality. Listen, church, boy, girl, man, woman. If you want to rightly represent Jesus, the formula is simple. You have to abide in the vine. And if you do that, the promise is that he will abide in you. How do you abide? You continue to press into Christ. You practice the spiritual disciplines. It's simple. We learn it in vacation Bible school. Keep pressing. Keep praying. Keep petitioning the Lord. Keep reading his scriptures over and over and over and over again. Allow him to unveil to you and to reveal to you the beauties that are that are within the text. And he will refine you. He will sharpen you in that process. But he will also prune you. He will also prune you so that more and more fruits are born out of your life for the purpose, first and foremost, that the world might see your good works 
and glorify your Father who is in heaven because that's what it all comes down to as far as what matters most, the glory of God. Abide in the vine because if you abide in him and he abides in you, you will bear much fruit. Let's pray and we can be dismissed. Lord, thank you for the reality of the word. Thank you for the message here that is clear for us. Lord, that there's a call for us, there's a demand of us that is good for us, that we would abide in you. Lord, I know we don't always do that, Lord. We trust in other things, we pursue things that are less, we pursue things that are worthless, Lord. We are oftentimes no different from Israel in their actions, Lord, ethnic Israel. But Lord, I pray that you would use this word to land in our hearts, Lord, that it would take root so that we might not sin against you. And Father, I pray that we would leave this place, Lord, that we would look like branches, Lord, branches that bear fruit. Lord, and they wouldn't be born out of our lives so that we might brag, but so that you might continue to prune and bring about more fruit. Lord, whatever hardship or situation, Lord, we might be facing at this time, because I know there are many, we know that you are lovingly pruning us. Because these hardships, these trials, Lord, they're not arbitrary. They aren't meaningless. They aren't worthless. But, Lord, you intend them for fruit-bearing. And help us to connect with that and find joy in that. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, you're dismissed. <laughs>